Hello and a very warm welcome to this week's Geraldine Jameson interview. Now, my guest today has a wealth of personal, fascinating stories from both worlds of art and music. His time at Trinity College Dublin with Brendan Behan and the like, while working for the Observer newspaper in London where he met Nancy Mitford, Hammond Innes, J.B. Priestley, Lord Montgomery of Alamein, Lady Thatcher, members of the royal family, and then there's the story of Picasso and the school prince. Well, Ireland resident David Ellion, a very warm welcome to the programme. Thank you very much, Geraldine. Now, David, you were born in Cork, Southern Ireland. It's Correct. just a trace of it left, not very much, really. But you attended your first opera at the early age of 10. Now, you've been going for more than 50 years, so you're a real opera buff. Yet you still forget the actual uh, storylines. I mean, can that really be true? Well, the point is, after I've seen the first 25 or so operas, um, all the well-known ones like La Boheme, Madame Butterfly, La, El Trovatore, La Traviata, Aida Rigoletto, etc., part of the fun is seeing new ones, not seeing the same ones o- over again. And as one increases the number of operas that one's seen to, say, well over 100, apart from maybe 20 stories, I honestly can't remember them, and I have to refresh my memory yeah. before I go the next time. Something I've always meant to ask somebody who obviously would have a composite knowledge like your good self, does the performance always have to be faultless? I mean, does that really, is that paramount to one's enjoyment? I don't think there's any such thing as a a faultless opera. Um, To start with, even, even among the soloists, they're not all on the top of their form all the time. Sometimes you discover afterwards that somebody's had a cold for the previous week, though their acting ability um, covered up the fact that n- nobody in the audience knew. Occasionally somebody does, and I've, I've even been to operas where somebody else, where, where the person with the cold was actually singing from the wings while somebody was miming on stage. And I've also been to operas where half an hour before the curtain went up, somebody cried off and they managed to get somebody, often in the audience, at very short notice, who knew the role and was able to take over. And it gave them their first break. Certainly that bit about uh, miming, I mean, that must have been very tricky. Indeed. Do you have, then, a favourite opera? I think my favourite opera is probably De Rosen Cavalier, because it's got a bit of everything. Lovely music, it calls for good female singing particularly, and it's a rather sad story in some ways. Um, But I, I do like that the best, I think. Is it performed the most? It's not the most popular, is it? No, no, the, 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 the most popular opera by far is Madame Butterfly, or as the Italians call it, Madama Butterfly, mm-hmm. which is performed all around the world, often in Italian, um, often in a, the local language. Um, but that seems to be the one that grabs people the, yeah. the most or the best or whatever the phrase would be. <laughs> now, uh, coming back to, to your life story, personally... How you came to work for The Observer, did you always have an ambition to get into publishing? I did, ever since I was at university and sort of worked on um, the college newspaper, Trinity News, and then a literary publication called Icarus, and the first time I'd come across Icarus and, 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 and discovered what happened to the poor old chap, um, I've always wanted to be in, in publishing. But looking back on it now, having eventually got into publishing, because at the time, in the, in the 60s, 
you needed um, contacts. You needed to have a, a well-known author for an uncle or an aunt. In fact, I had a colleague. Um, I joined Thompson Book Publishing side, um, sister companies of the Times and Sunday Times newspapers, and my colleague was then called Peregrine Hartington. He's now the Duke of Devonshire, but, I mean, he walked into a job there because his aunt was Nancy Mitford, you see. I didn't have an uncle or an aunt who was a well-known novelist, and I struggled. But eventually I got in, and when I got in, I then discovered that the work was fascinating and the people were the most charming you could ever meet. The pay was terrible. So after about five or six years, I decided to go out and do something else because I had a, a car to run and a mortgage to pay. <laughs> well, of course, it, it was the Astor family that owned the Observer, wasn't it? It was. When, yeah. when I joined them in about 1970, um, it was the Astor family which owned it. And the editor was the Honourable David Astor. It was an independent liberal paper. Completely, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Well, what about some of these people that I named at the top of the programme? For instance, Lord Montgomery of Alamein. Is there a connection there? Well, not with the Observer, but I, I, I met him and worked with him, in fact, on his history of warfare in, in, in the late 60s when I was working with Thompson Publications. They had a number of book publishing companies. George Rainbird, there was Thomas Nelson, Hamish Hamilton, Sphere Books, Michael Joseph. They, they were the main ones. And I was the budget controller, so I was involved in almost everything they did because I had to produce a budget for any particular book that was to come out um, with sales targets and around the world and all the editorial and research and picture costs, etc., etc., apart from printing costs. I worked in, in tandem with the editor um, to make sure that he didn't travel very far from the budget. And if, I, if he did, I had to sort of metaphorically ring, ring, ring a bell um, and, and call an editorial meeting so we could look at what was going wrong. But I did work with Monty for quite a number of months. He lived in a caravan at that time down in Hampshire, and he was absolutely punctilious about meeting times. In fact, he used to come to our offices in London, which were then near Marble Arch, and at about, say, he was coming to see us at 2 o'clock, we would have two senior people down on, on the pavement to meet him when his car arrived at about 10 to 2. And when they got there, they would see Monty and his chauffeur driving past. But he didn't actually stop the car and get out until 2 o'clock on the dot. <laughs> so the chauffeur had to go around the block any number of times. Because <laughs> I think being early was just as bad as being late. Dear goodness. History of Warfare. That that, that, was, that was the book, yes. Mm, yes, yeah. and I've got a lovely photograph of Monty signing my copy of it. <laughs> it's here in, in, in the house in Douglas. <laughs> my goodness. Mm -hmm. Going from sort of one end of the, of the uh, parameter, really, to the, to the other, you had an extraordinary relationship, if, if we can put it that way, but it was behind bars, at least there were bars sort of separating you, with a nun which lasted 25 years. That's right. That was the Order of St. Benedict. Yes, uh, Dame Hildeleth Cumming, who was uh, a Benedictine nun at Stanbrook Abbey in Worcestershire. When I came to London first, um, I, I had an ambition of not just getting into publishing, but also of publishing some books, preferably poetry. I had a number of friends uh, who hadn't yet appeared in, in book form. Brendan Kennelly, ex-professor of English at Trinity College Dublin, a colleague of mine, um, was the first person I published, and I'm glad to say, although it was only a, a limited edition of 250 copies, um, I have the dubious distinction of publishing his first book. But when I moved to London in 1966, 
I had the ambition to try and publish a volume of verse by James Clarence Mangan, an Irish 19th century poet who was um, very much um, a bohemian, sort of lived, lived in doorways and other people's homes and that sort of thing and never had any money. But his poetry was generally acknowledged by his English contemporaries to be among the best ever to have been written in Ireland. And because of his his circumstances and his background, nobody was prepared to publish his book, his, his works in book form because he was so unreliable they never knew whether he was going to emerge with a poem or not. But of course he died in the 1850s, so a um, hundred and something years later, I mean, we were able to look at all his work and decide that it was pretty good. And I thought, wouldn't it be quite nice if I could get um, an English private hand press um, to produce the poems? And I approached um, Stanbrook Abbey Press. I mean, Dame Hildeleth Cumming was quite well known at the time as their printer and also as the conductor of, the, of, of their choir of nuns. So I wrote to her, and then a number of weeks went by before I got a reply. I thought she wasn't going to reply at all. But when she did, she said um, she'd be very happy to talk to me about it, and would it be possible for me to visit her um, near Worcester, possibly some weekend. So I went down one Saturday, and it was absolutely fascinating, because in those days, um, one met the, the members of the order. It had, they had originally been a silent order um, some years before that, but they weren't silent anymore. In fact, they all seemed to talk rather a lot, from my experience. But when I went down there, um, you had to meet a nun on the other side of a grill, um, rather like an old-fashioned bank. And if you wanted to show something to the nun on the other side of the grill, or she to you, um, she had to unlock a drawer that you were leaning on. She would then push it through to your side. You would then put your um, whatever you wanted to show in, in a drawer. She would then pull it back to her side, take it out, and then lock the drawer again. Um, so that that was the way they, they started. I mean, when twenty five years later, when I was when she died. Um, there was no longer that sort of procedure. You were able to sit in an armchair and she was able to sit next to you and you could talk or even touch if you wanted to. Yeah. It's, it's amazing, though, really. Mm -hmm. and, and it got published in the end, did it? Well, it didn't, in fact, because um, she expressed great enthusiasm for it and it was going to be hand-printed, but she had a number of projects that she was doing before she could tackle it. But when she got around to tackling it, she discovered that other colleagues of hers in the, in the printing press um, were elderly and ill and she herself had a heart attack and although she held out the promise um, that it would appear one day um, it never did in fact um, but it, it gave me an opportunity to correspond with her and after 25 years I was able to publish the correspondence and it made a lovely and fascinating story um, along the way, um, the Stanbrook Abbey Press celebrated their centenary, so they asked me if I could help to find a venue in London where we could have an exhibition of the first hundred years of their works. And I first of all approached the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, and they expressed interest. And then I, I, I thought they might say no, so I went to the British Museum. So I mentioned this to um, Dame Hildeleth, and she said, what would happen? She said, if they both said yes. And I said, well, I'm not a gambling man, but I think they're both more likely to say no. <laughs> um, little did I know at the time that they were actually speaking to each other and they decided the V&A would be a better venue 
for an exhibition of this nature because they had all the Sidney Cockrell material there. And he, in fact, had produced one of his books himself about 30 or 40 years beforehand at Stanbrook Abbey. So it all went ahead. And when the exhibition took place, the latest work in progress, which was, in fact, my James Clarence Mangan volume, was the one that they showed most of because that was the one they were able to show in various stages of the printing process. So apart from that and having a copy of the catalogue of the exhibition and, and of course, the collection of letters, there's nothing else to show for for the venture at all (laughs) other than the happiest of memories visiting Stanbrook Abbey. Wonderful. I think it's lovely. Well, just a reminder that you're listening to the Geraldine Jameson interview and my guest today is island resident David Elian, a man of enormous breadth of interest, especially in the worlds of music and art. There's a connection with you, David, with Malta. Now, the interesting thing about Malta to me is, I remember you telling me this, that their opera house is actually the oldest in the world. It even is older than La Scala in Milan. Yes, that's perfectly true. It's a very small one, isn't it? It is. It only has just over 600 seats. But it's a lovely theatre because it's got stalls and then it doesn't have a dress circle or an upper circle, but it has boxes around on, on three sides. And it's very intimate because you can almost hear what the people in boxes on the other side of the auditorium are saying. (laughs) And it goes back to 1731. It was created by one of the Grand Masters of the Knights of Malta. I didn't realize it it was the oldest in existence. I mean, there have been older ones, but I mean, they've been burnt down or demolished over the years. And when I went to have a look at it for the first time, oh, I said, it's just like La Scala on a smaller scale. And the man showing me round suddenly became horrified. The smile went from his face and he said, no, 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 he said, you must understand, he said, this opera house is much, much older than La Scala. We're nearly a hundred years older, he said. (laughs) (laughs) Festival Chorus, Northwest Festival Chorus, which includes people from the Isle of Man, have gone across there and performed. Very much so. In May last year, Dr John Bethel took a large choir, I think of 88 choral members, plus an organist, plus four soloists, out to Malta where they gave five or six concerts in one week. It was really, really hard work for them. As it was quite hot, I felt a bit sorry also. (laughs) But they did the two Mendelssohn oratorios, St Paul, known as Paulus, and Elijah, which both went down very well. And they were performed at the Anglican Pro-Cathedral in Valletta. Appropriately, the Cathedral of St. Paul, who was the patron saint of Malta. Well, you're actually director of the Mediterranean Institute. That's at Malta University. And you were made an honorary fellow there of the university in in 2000. How does the Isle of Man compare artistically to Malta, would you say? Well, I think, uh, on the one hand, Malta is only about two-thirds the size of the Isle of Man. But on the other hand, whereas Malta has approximately 80... uh, 400,000 people, the Isle of Man only has 80,000. So I think you've got to take the population factors into account, plus the fact that Malta also has a university with over 11,000 undergraduates nowadays. But considering the amount of music that is turned out on the Isle of Man, most of it locally produced, I think the Isle of Man does extremely well on that score. You know, on any sort of rating, would perform very well as compared with Malta. Well, it would be good if the two islands connected up more in the future, wouldn't it? It would, but a problem you have on any island is it costs much more 
to run a theatre or put on a concert or something because you have all the extra costs involved. Mm. You have airfares and overnight accommodation that you wouldn't have in maybe Manchester or London or mm. other large cities where there's a local pool of talent which you can fish in sort of thing for, for your shows. <laughs> now, there's a captivating story that you tell very well, and that is actually to do with, with art. It's all to do with your time at the Observer newspaper because you devised and created Observer Art, which featured in their colour magazine. And it was because of that that a certain Mrs Brenda Rawnsley wrote to the newspaper editor, in fact, we talked about him earlier, David Astor, saying, your newspaper, she said, is making valiant efforts to enter the art world. I'm trying to get out of it. Would you be interested in buying my business in Belgravia? And that's what leads us, actually, to Picasso and the story of the school prince. Well, I hadn't been at the Observer all that long, less than a year, in fact, when we came up with this idea of producing what we called Observer Art through the new Observer Colour magazine. We started a colour magazine about the same time as the Sunday Telegraph did, and that was not very long after the Sunday Times, which was the first into this field. And we were looking for something different to offer our readers. And somebody, I don't know who, I think it was one of my colleagues, Patrick Seal, suggested, what about art? So we worked up Observer Art. We published a number of editions that we ourselves commissioned from people like David Hockney, Patrick Proctor, Eduardo Paolozzi, Elizabeth Frink, etc. And it was after that that Brenda Rawnsley wrote to David Astor in the terms you've described. Nobody knew what to do with the letter. Uh, He passed it to the general manager, Tristan Jones, who passed it on to somebody else. And eventually it reached my lowly level, a bit like a leaf falling from a tree in autumn. And I sort of grabbed it just before it hit the ground sort of thing. The easy thing to have done would have been to have written to Mrs. Rawnsley saying, thank you very much for your kind offer, but we have no wish or desire to open a gallery or take over one in Belgravia. But for some reason, I thought before I turned it down, I should at least pair the courtesy of a little visit and turn it down after that, which was what was intended. So I phoned her and arranged to meet her one evening. This would have been 1970-ish, I think. On the appointed day, I sort of wandered round to Motcombe Street, Belgrave Square. Before I got to her doorbell, I thought to myself, what am I doing here, you know? It's a bit like expressing an interest in in, in a house that's been advertised, and as soon as you turn the corner into the street that it's in, you know it's not for you. But in the distance, you can see the estate agent walking up and down outside, (laughs) waiting for you to arrive. Do you turn around, get into your car and flee, or do you go through the charade of of going round the house? I felt a bit like that in Motcombe Street. So I rang the bell, and Mrs. Rawnsley came down and brought me up to her apartment on the top two floors gave me a chat about the business and the background, etc. And then she showed me the stock she had that she was selling currently. After an hour or so, she hadn't changed my mind, of course, in any way. We, we were going down the stairs with a view to me leaving. And she said, oh, would you like to have a look at our picture framing department across the road in Kinnerton Mews? And I thought, well, as I'm going down, might as well have another look if it's only across the road. So she got the keys and we went down across the road. And as she opened up the framing department, which was an old muse, I could, I could see, I think, some of the stars through the roof. 
and she showed me all the mouldings and things like that and the mounts she had for the frames. I said, what are all those bundles in the corner there, Mrs. Rawnsley? And she said, oh, those are our French prints. I said, what are the French prints? Well, she said, going back to 1948, I hit, I hit on this idea of commissioning Picasso and Braque and Matisse and Leger and Dufy, five Frenchmen, um, to produce prints to sell um, to schools in England. As you know, there was, there was no art in the schools after the war. And we'd had a measure of success with a large edition print by Henry Moore. So I thought, well, you know, why not try and get some of these French artists to produce works for us? So I rounded up some people. I went off to Barclays Bank and managed to convince the bank manager to lend me £250 so I could hire an aeroplane for a week. On a day in June 1948, we all went down to Gatwick Aerodrome, as it was called at the time, and we flew with a New Zealand pilot to Le Bourget, outside Paris. And from there, I went off to see Georges Braque. When I got there, and I sort of was admitted into his studio before he came out to greet me, I said, this isn't a penniless artist at all. This man lives in great luxury. And he came out, and we went in, and we had some tea with him, I think. And... He was interested in the concept, but he said, who else have you got? And I told him, well, we haven't got anybody yet, but after this we're going to go down to the south of France to see Picasso. And he said, well, I don't think he'll produce one for you. I mean, he's much too busy to do that. Anyway, um, when he left, he didn't want to be unkind, and he said, well, I'll tell you what, he said, if Picasso will agree to do one for you, I will too. Off we went, but before we went, we went to see Fernand Leger. And I, I was told, said Brenda Ronsley, that he loves bright colours. So I actually had with me a yellow dress um, and a purple coat. And as soon as I walked in, he admired these enormously. And he agreed to do one there and then on the spot. So we had one artist at least. After that, we flew down to Nice Airport and we hired a car to take us to Golf Juin to meet Picasso. But when we got to Golf Juin, all we went to was his local bar to try and find out how best to approach the man. We did know that he was there because a dealer in Paris had told us he, he, he was down there in his villa at that time. We spoke to the owner of this bar and he sort of threw his hands in the air and said, it is impossible. And then after we'd bought the owner of the bar a few of his own drinks, <laughs> he sort of softened up a bit and he said, there's only one possibility, he said. If you come back about dinner time this evening, his chauffeur always comes in here for a drink before he goes home. We'll have a word with him and see if he can suggest anything. So they went for a drive around the countryside and got back there about 8 o'clock to, uh, to be introduced to Picasso's chauffeur and he listened to what they ha had to say. He said, well, there's only one possibility. He said every day before lunch, he and his little son, Claude, and his mistress, Francois Gillot, the three of them, go down to a little beach not far from here. They have a swim and a picnic, and then they all go back and Picasso starts work again. The only possibility would be if, if I told you where this little beach was, and if you went there, you could maybe talk to him yourselves. So the following day, armed with a picnic, they all went off to this particular area of beach and eventually they saw the great man approaching 
with a wicker hamper in, in, in one hand and his little son Claude on the other. He was a bit annoyed, I think, to find people already sitting on his favourite spot of sand. But after a little while they got into conversation. They mentioned that they brought greetings from one or two dealers that he knew in Paris. And he softened up and he offered them some wine, etc., etc. He was absolutely intrigued that they'd come all the way down by aeroplane to see him. And they brought greetings also from his great friend Georges Braque. So they went up to his villa. And then he insisted that he take them. He had another workshops over at Valorie, where he produced pottery. He was into pottery, in fact, at that time. So he insisted on taking them all off to have a look at the pots that he was making at Valorie. And by this time, he'd come to a view, he said, on what he would do. And he was inclined to help them with a print. But he said there'd only be one condition. Mrs. Rawnsley was absolutely in dread of what this condition might be, probably want a thousand pounds or something for it. I've never been inside an aeroplane, he said. I wouldn't want to fly anywhere, he said. I'd be much too scared to do that. But would it be possible for me to go to Nice to have a look at your plane and go inside it? So after Valerie, they all went off to Nice Airport. I guess it must have been a very small airport in those days. <laughs> he was absolutely intrigued going inside the plane and having a look around, etc., etc. And after that, they all went back to his villa where he produced on the stone the print that was to go off to the printer. From there, they went off to Perpignan where they looked up Dufy. When he heard that Picasso had agreed to do it and also Leger, he of course also agreed. Then they went back to Paris where they saw Georges Braque again who agreed to do one, I think, for £200. Picasso, meanwhile, hadn't, hadn't mentioned a sum at all. So apart from... Brenda's worry about having to pay maybe a thousand pounds of 1948 currency, <laughs> rather a lot of money. He did get a fee, I think, in the end of about 200 pounds also. But Braque agreed, and finally they went off to see Henri Matisse, who was very, very ill at the time and didn't live, I think, more than a year after that visit. But he said he was too old and too decrepit to actually paint a print, a producer print for them, but he would do what he called a papier de chire, which is a paper cutout of a dancer, and then he would paint around it. Despite the fact he was well into his 80s and a, a, a very sick man at the time, probably of all the five prints that were produced, his image was the strongest. Anyway, we now move back to England, and Brenda Rawnsley produces 3,000 of each of these prints, and the intention was to sell them for a pound each to schools. Well, she met with a total lack of interest, coupled with a lack of money. The, the education authorities didn't have any money. They had no understanding of the importance of these artists at that time. We sold some hundreds of each one, she said, but as you see, there's a hole in the roof here in the, in the framing department. A lot of them have been water-stained, and I've had to throw them out. And in fact, I've had to throw out more than I've sold. And I said, well, how many have you got left? She said, well, an average of about 800 of each. So I said, do you have uh, photographs with Picasso? Oh, yes, she said. Would you like to come back upstairs again and I'll show you the photographs? So we went back up to her apartment again in Motcombe Street and she went away and sort of a few minutes later came back with all these black and white photographs of Picasso and the various other artists that she'd taken. 
And I said, has anybody written the story that you've just told me? No, she said. My friends, of course, knew about it at the time. They, they, they laughed at it and thought it was great fun. But no, it's never been written about. We parted, and I must say I was rather more optimistic than I was when I entered her gallery for the first time. The following day, I called a meeting at the Observer, and they decided this is a story worth, well worth telling, and we would try and sell 800 average of each of these prints to our readers. But Patrick Seal came up. He said, well, we can't just do it for a pound. You know, we've been selling Hockneys and things for 12 and 15 pounds. So it's got to be about 15 pounds, you know, for these. And people said, that's an awful lot of money. Why 15 pounds? And he says, well, of course, there's purchase tax to pay. There was purchase tax pre-VAT in those days. That would be the purchase tax plus the cost of postage and packing because they'd have to go into a corrugated tube would be about five pounds. Then they'd be five pounds for Mrs. Rawnsley and five pounds for the Observer. So we went ahead and we got a journalist to write an article in having interviewed Mrs. Rawnsley. We put the, some of the photographs from that French escapade into the colour magazine and we offered them to readers. We didn't know what sort of response we were going to get, of course. It could have been an abject failure. But within two weeks, we'd sold the lot. Mm-hmm. And the nice part of the story is that Brenda Rawnsley got more from those £5 per print in total than she was asking for the sale of the business, including the lease and all the stock, including the French prints, mouldings, picture frames, the lot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a fantastic story. And your passion and knowledge of both art and music and indeed love of people, David Ellen, makes you a truly fascinating guest on the Geraldine Jameson interview this week. And I thank you most sincerely. Thank you, Geraldine, for inviting me. Thank you.